Why is it green? Do you think? The night. Yes. Was he born that way? Perhaps it is the color of his blood when he blushes. But why green? Why not blue? Or red? Because he's not of this earth. But green is the color of earth, of living things, of life. And of rot. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We deck our halls with it and dye our linens. But should it come creeping up the cobbles, we scrub it out fast as we can. When it blooms beneath our skin, we bleed it out and When we, together all, find that our reach has exceeded our grasp, we cut it down. We stamp it out, we spread ourselves atop it and smother it beneath our bellies, but it comes back. It does not dally, nor does it wait to plot a conspire, pull it out by the roads one day and the next there it is. Creeping in around the edges. Whilst we're off looking for red, in comes green. Red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind. In heart. In womb. Green is what is left when art our fades, when Passion dies when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all. In all its shades and hues. This verdigree will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue. All right, we're going, guys. So we're here to talk about Christmas movie, best Christmas hey, movie ever. Home Alone too. Christ is born. Christ is born indeed. Christ is born. <laughs> That's in a manger too, doesn't it? It yeah, looks like I, a manger. I was reading. It does look your, like a manger. Your thing on that, your uh, your review you wrote, and I don't, I don't think I even noticed that. There was stuff you you mentioned, Mitch, that I didn't even pick up on at all. So where do we, where should we start with this anyway? What do you guys think? Well, from the beginning. From the beginning, do you want to give us a rundown? In a manger, he gets right. doused with water. Uh, she says Christ is born. It's Essel. She's a prostitute, right? See, that was one thing I did not pick up on. You did it seem that way to you guys? I I got that she was a prostitute. I'm going to preface so this with saying I've only seen this once, so I would like to watch it again. Um and go back, but yeah, first watch. She was a prostitute. He woke. Like he wakes up in a brothel. brothel. 
Yep. Right. Exactly. Uh, did you think, did you get that correct too? For some reason, I didn't pick up on this and I've watched this movie multiple times. Well, I had that impression when he comes out of the, the bedroom and there was another man and another woman. Yes. With each other. Uh, I didn't know that. I was, just, I was just so focused on Essel. I thought that would be pretty uncommon in, in this, uh, using a, a space dedicated to that uh, activity. That's interesting. I think that uh, I think that's a, a nugget that would add a lot to the, maybe the clarity of the film overall that I didn't even realize. So, anyways, um, did you get the impression that his lover was somebody who wasn't noble? I did. I did mm-hmm. not actually. The uh, Essel, the girl in it, the prostitute, mm-hmm. and I for some reason I didn't, but I probably should have. I didn't did either, you- but I think maybe that that was the way it was supposed to be. Um, yeah, I think it's hard. It's hard for somebody to degrade somebody. It's hard to call out somebody's lack of nobility without being from a noble place yourself, right? And so I think that the ability that she has to speak down to him and to speak for him to know what she wants and to be able to say that he can't get it up in more ways than one, right? Um, I think maybe it's designed to be that you're left with an impression of her that she's more noble of a person than he is. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And you know what caught my attention? I didn't I didn't think that she was from an unknowable background. I actually didn't think much about the the setting of the first scene with respect to her until the scene where she asks him, Will you make me your lady? And he doesn't say anything in response. And you're just thinking, what a dirtbag this guy is. And she sits there and speaks for him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She takes his mouth and says, well, yes, that's it. Uh, what did she say, Jason? Yeah. Why, yes, Essel. I can't remember the rest of it. I would like that very much or something like that. Yeah. That's, I love this movie. Yeah, see, the weird thing, too. This is one thing I was going to say beforehand, too. I don't know. It's kind of relevant, kind of not. Is I feel like I heard not good things about this movie from a lot of different areas, it seemed like, but I think it was people that were familiar with the normal Green Knight story didn't like this one. Um, And I don't know the normal Green Knight story. Uh, So I actually love this movie, but, so this might be related, it might not be, but did you guys see the new Chip and Dale movie? I I I gotta say I missed it. Okay, well, (laughs) I heard this was good and I went to watch this movie and I was like, like, it was just, did you see it? You saw it? No, I'm oh, imagining okay. you okay. there with your Chippendale costume on opening night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I used to watch. I loved Chippendale when I was younger, and then I'm watching it with my nieces and nephews, and they love this movie. And I'm sitting here thinking, "Oh, this movie! Like, gosh, why are they doing this?" But then, it, like, it was kind of convicting because the whole the whole intention of that movie is to re is to rewrite the story. Like, that was the whole the whole purpose of that movie is is basically to just flat out say, "This is a like." we're revamping this we're redoing it it's not for you necessarily it's not for your childhood it's almost for like a different audience type thing and so when i got that it kind of like i don't know if people maybe should approach this movie that way too it's kind of like it the the other story it's almost like it's a different story almost like this i guess isn't necessarily the same story so it's kind of like a a revamp or rewritten in that way i don't really know but yeah, that Chippendale movie, the whole time I was like, oh, this sucks. This sucks. They're doing this to it. But then at the same time, I'm like, 
well, you know, everybody else is enjoying it. And the, it's, I wasn't enjoying it because of the nostalgia I had as a child it was like causing me to not enjoy this other film. Cause if I didn't have all that nostalgia or like the previous, my previous thoughts about it, I probably would have enjoyed the Chip and Dale movie just coming to it like a blank slate. So anyway, that just to say this, I thought this movie was really great, but I, I kind of came to it with a just complete blank slate, not knowing anything else about the original. I mean, I think that's fine. I mean, I, I have read the original. It's been a very long time, so I actually reread the Spark Notes in preparation for tonight. Um, but yeah. it's written like an Arthurian story, right? And so it leaves a lot of room for the imagination. So I think I think it's fine. I oh. think it's great that you like it. Yeah. Did any of you guys see Ghost Story? No. It's the same creator. It's it's really a must see. I'll have to watch it. Is this kind of have what the same you- vibe? Um, they're similarly, I guess, artsy, sort of a pejorative almost now, but, uh, yeah, they, they have a similar vibe, but it's not a fantasy, uh, in modern times. So after seeing Ghost Story, what did that equip you with that you brought to bear on the Green Knight? The first thing was I knew I had to see it. Uh, and the second thing I knew is this is going to be, you know, not your straightforward sword and sandal kind of epic. It's going to be very existentially laden. And I guess there's a lot of room for that in all of these kind of old fairy tales to, you know, they, they just, they're fractal, man. It is a fairy tale too, right? It definitely has that vibe. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what you guys, what, from what you know, what do you think was in there intentionally? What were the creative choices that weren't strictly necessary based on the original story that that caught your attention or you thought were worth talking about? Based on the original? Because I don't know the original story. With, with, so like I said, it's been a very long time. The two biggest mm-hmm. things that jumped out to me were... Um, I don't recall. And then in the spark notes, they again, didn't mention the mother performing witchcraft and kind of summoning the green Knight. I think the green Knight just kind of appeared on his own. Um, And I don't recall there being any mention of organic matter in terms of the green Knight. The mother was like Morgan Le Fay, right? The the mother was what? She's like a Morgan Le Fay type character. Who's Morgan Le Fay? Yeah. Craig's great, 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 great grandmother. Uh, no, I should, like I the, should know this. The primary, oh, like, go ahead, Craig. No, you. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong as well. I was hoping you'd say me, but she's like the primary, like, um, like magic lady in the Arthurian tales. I don't know. Is oh, she, yeah. it, she's the one that, she's the one that locks up <clears throat> Merlin, right? That sounds right. I for some reason that's where I'm going. Like, but I don't know that it, I'm not 100 percent on that. But I thought somebody, yeah, yeah, somebody who knows the Arthur stories better than us is going to watch this, and they're going to just, oh, I'll Google they're it just right going to turn over. But uh, may, what we should probably do is not try to approach it from the perspective of people who are, are experts in Arthur. <laughs> it's true. But my my, um, my impression I, is in the, in the original, 
story, you have Morgan Le Fay, who's a sorceress, and she is puppeteering the whole ordeal. Well, she's not at the table when the Green Knight comes, but the right. old woman, the old woman in the castle of the the Green King and Queen, is Morgan Le Fay in disguise. So that was something cool. that they didn't they didn't really. I, I, I wasn't sure what to th what to think about the the old woman the old woman with the blindfold who is in the castle not yeah, the yeah. castle of Arthur but the castle of the hosts yeah it was an either. <clears throat> you said that was Morgan Le Fay in disguise in the original stories that's Morgan Le Fay in disguise uh -huh. that's interesting but you know the Morgan Le Fay I I always I thought of the mother of that when I was the mother is her when I was watching this even though they don't say that at all. Uh, I can't even remember why I got that impression. Well, she does. She does get possessed by the Green Knight to speak to issue the challenge, right? Uh, that was. She oh. it seems like she organizes the whole thing, kind of. No, you're the talking mother. about. You're talking. Craig, you're about talking the, about the wife of King Arthur, the Queen. Of, yes, I'm sorry. Who, who did you? Queen of That was one of His mother. What, his mother, okay, that performs the same. I, mis I misunderstood, but no, I think you might be right, Craig, because I think she is in her seance. I, her mouth might actually be moving as well. The mother's mouth, she might actually be speaking, and then it's going like through the Guinevere in the circle. I can't remember exactly, um, but she does write the note. The mother writes the note, and then I think sets it on fire in the little seance, and then it falls mm. and then a plant sprouts or something like that. You know what was really memorable to me was the scene where the knight comes into the dining hall and he issues the challenge. And one thing that caught my attention, I always imagined as a child the round table as a giant circle, but this one was kind of a, a donut shape, which I... I never imagined, but I thought it was good. But so they issue the challenge, and in the original, Arthur, I believe, is actually going to accept the challenge. He and does. Gawain, yes. Gawain steps in, and in this one, Arthur's kind of cowardly, and he says he doesn't do anything. He says, "Which of you knights is going to do that?" And they say nothing, and then uh, you know, what's his butt jumps over the table, everything, and. He and he doesn't have a weapon. And in the original, he uses the axe of the Green Knight. That was part of the challenge. But in this, it seemed like he used Excalibur. Was that what you gathered? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the. I didn't really think about all the significance of it. But yeah, he doesn't use the. He definitely uses the Excalibur, Excalibur to cut off his head. If that is Excalibur, I think. But I like when he takes the. Gosh, I just love the the way they filmed it too. Because when he takes the sword from Arthur, just like the whole room lights up, like all of a sudden the sun's shining through, and he takes it, and the sun's yeah. reflecting off the sword, and you're just like, it's this like holy moment yeah. or something. It's a really beautiful. cool scene. Yeah, there's so many subtleties throughout the entire film where it's just like they put in these little things where you just really have to watch. And I don't even know what all of them mean. Like though, because to be honest, I still don't know what to make of a lot of the film. I'm just extremely confused <laughs> but i think that's some part of my intrigue with it i don't know craig what do you think is the significance of um 
the deviation off of the original story where Arthur was the first one to accept the challenge to the movie where Owen is the one who steps up initially. Mm. What do you think is the significance of that? Well, my, my working theory, and maybe it's a poor one, is that they were trying to make the story more insular, mm. more about Garwin or however you pronounce his name it seemed like they were trying to make it entirely about him and trying trying to kind of cut off the loose ends Mm. that attached the story to the rest of the arthur universe yeah the story to me just seemed like like a a call to knighthood that's why that's why i was telling you on the phone like i think i think it's associated like i kept seeing I kept thinking, this is like Bambi. This is like Bambi. Because I watched Bambi shortly mm. after it. And I'm like, this is just like the Great Knight. Because it's like, it's this weird encounter with the feminine that calls him to to become a man. Mm. And calls him to knighthood. And she says, like, it starts out with him, like Mitch was saying, in the brothel. And then he gets up and they leave. And then he falls down. And she's like, get up. And he says, I'm not ready yet. And he's like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then, mm. uh, and then what they ask him... I think I think even King Arthur before that asked him if he's a knight or something like that, and he says he's not a knight yet. And then, um, and then when he's at the round table, he says you should you should sit next to me, and he says that's not my seat. And he says let it be today. And then Guinevere mm-hmm. gives him a rebuke and says don't don't sit among these people idly, type things like you need to. It's just weird. The whole movie feels like a call to knighthood in mm-hmm. a sense, and I think that's what was so compelling to me was i think it kind of got in my subconscious and i didn't even realize it the whole headless theme of just like him not knowing who he was like he didn't have an identity really he didn't have a head oh like everybody else seems to not have a head but really it's Gawain that doesn't have a head like the whole time or something you know it's kind of strange but that's kind of that's kind of the vibe i got from it like it was kind of insular around the one character mm. Gawain or Gawain or whatever Gawain and it uh yeah. and it's kind of a focus on um yeah just uh the young Bambi young prince having to like trade in his spots for his antlers is what it says in Bambi so I'm like mm. it kind of seems similar what do you guys think did it seem kind of that way to you or or did well, you I- get a different vibe I had I had the sense that he was totally out of place, and you know you, you see him with Excalibur, and he looks a little goofy with it. He looks like he's totally unbecoming of the situation, and it doesn't help that he jumps over the table, and knocks something over. You know he he knocks the wine over and it spills onto the ruins, which I suppose has a double purpose. But you just thought you think that whoever's holding Excalibur shouldn't be knocking things off the table on accident. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny too. I didn't notice it till watching it again, but um what is it? King Arthur, I think right before that says something like he says something about if I were younger, I would leap over leap across this table to meet thee or something. And then you see Gawain oh, yeah, yeah. do it and he spills the wine and the blood wine that scene, it just runs like so thick. It's just like thick blood or something pouring off the table. It's yeah. Yeah, that's good. He does seem really out of place. What's on your mind, John? I mean, a little unrelated. I did read today that um, 
in the original in the in this book uh he stands up in front of the green knight and says and and points out the fact that he is the least prepared to do this out of any of the knights that are sitting there and that he's the lowliest and then i read i, I read this other thing that went into a deep discussion where it said um traditional scholars of of medieval times and knights uh have actually suggested that that sort of humility was commonplace in 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 between knights and so it was not atypical for a knight to kind of put themselves down like that mm-hmm. i think that's outside of the context of the story that's um, a great detail but it's interesting and i don't i don't really know what it means in terms of the story or the story's purpose, but it's certainly interesting. Yeah. You know what's what's what you're reminding me of, and it's going to take us even further away, but there's a, a certain thing that happens in culture where if somebody catches on as an individual, if somebody kind of makes it and earns a reputation, it's very rarely alone, but a part of a, a group, especially in music, this is true. And so the people that you see rising to attention are the people who are a part of, not a band, but for example, uh, in, in hip hop, you had like this feud between the East Coast and the West Coast. And so those, those groups, you know, like as being a part of that group, they kind of rose to attention together. And uh, it's interesting. Justin in Timberlake. Case of, exactly like Justin Timberlake. But there's 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 this famous move in philosophy where um, you have a philosopher named Heidegger, and he's you know with uncharacteristic humility he goes to the funeral of Max Scheler, another philosopher, and he says Max Scheler is the greatest philosopher in all of Europe. Hmm. And so everybody's thinking like who is who is Max Scheler? But by kind of putting himself lower. It's like the whole group looks better because you're like, well, if Heidegger is this good and he thinks Shaler is the bomb, they must be really incredible. And right. So perhaps there's a little bit of... So elevation by kind of an artificial downplaying of yourself? Yeah, do you think it's... I feel like it would be genuine when people do that, though. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would think so, but it, yeah. uh, you know... If it's not, it'll just be funny if it backfires. Just, yeah, you you all suck. Yeah, all just. But I think they did that. Uh, it seems like they did that a lot in uh, what was the, the circle of the authors. I forgot guys. I can't remember what they call themselves. But C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the they I think they did the same thing a lot. Would really the inklings, buddy. The inklings. Ah, sorry. Yeah. There's yeah. a really nice. There's a really nice book about the inklings. Uh, and it's on Audible. It's called The Fellowship, and I highly recommend it. I'm listening to it right now. Nice. I don't want to play it out loud. Oh no, I screwed up. But it looks like it looks like this. This is a horrible thing I'm doing. I'm trying to show you something. It's going to be so overexposed. That's you can't okay. even see it. But anyway, it's a great book. Nice. I wish I had Audible. Cool. Maybe I should look into that. Sounds like a handy tool. So what else stood out to you guys in the film? What do you guys think about the shot? I'm I'm only mentioning this because Mitch put a lot of emphasis on it in his review. 
Um, I had I had some of the same thoughts, but the shot where he finally leaves the castle and he's on his way, and it's that one very long panoramic shot where the kids are running after him for the first thirty seconds, and then he's interrupted by the uh, sheep herder. What do you think is the significance of that shot? Because I think Mitch kind of mentioned it in his review, but I had sort of the same mindset where I was overwhelmed with the amount of things that were going on and the depths to the symbolism there that I don't think I was able to wrap my head around any of it. That's me. That's what I mean. A lot of this stuff, it's like every single scene. I'm just like, there's so much in here. And it goes, it's so such a long shot like you're talking about it's just Mm -hmm. him there's no dialogue he's just trotting along um i don't know if it's kind of if he might feel high on his horse a little bit type thing and he's got these you know the the kids i don't know if it's kind of maybe putting him in a position of like he he's a little bit um arrogant in this and as he's going out but i don't know i don't I don't really get that though. He just kind of like, just, I have no idea. But what do you guys think? Craig, well, got... the, the, the yeah, symbolism, Craig. the symbolism, wasn't lost on me. I didn't know exactly what it was intended to be an allusion to. But another thing that was conspicuous to me was that they might have been doing intentionally long shots as a, let us say. Uh, A budget concern. They said, "Okay, we just need to we need to make this thing ninety minutes, and it's got to be." You know, there's a lot of shots like that where I was thinking, "This doesn't have to be this long," and, <laughs> you know, they're because it's a short story. It was, the Green Knight is not it's not a long story, and so I thought they were milking it, but I suspect that it's more than that. I don't think that's giving them enough credit. Yeah, I mean, I guess that it's very at the very least, it could just be a uh, trying to set a mood or something, you know. Like if it if it isn't intentional symbolism or something, it could just be trying to. Well, the kids seem intentional though. It seems like they look up to him and they're excited for him and everything. And that's why I didn't know if maybe there was something like he's he has a moment where he feels like you know like a knight for for a second or something like that. Uh, but the but then with the shepherd and everything like that and the whole it's got like the castle in the background. It could just be drawn out maybe to just kind of yeah like you said i guess it could just be that but it's also i feel like even if that's the case it's still kind of is weirdly setting a mood in a way but, but mm. um, what do you is that i feel like i keep killing the conversation i say things that it's just no it's no no <laughs> i'm just i'm so deep in thought that's the only reason i don't i don't really know i mean uh kind of like how Mitch really correctly worded it in, in his letterbox review. Um, just the shepherd and the children and the sheep on top of the whole introduction. And then immediately following that him coming to a cross, that's just a lot of biblical concepts, like heavy handed put in. And so uh, I would anticipate that there's something there that Craig, you're probably not giving them enough credit for just a long shot. I think that definitely might be part of it. Um, there's there's just i don't know i don't know i feel like there has to be something else there yeah it's weird too because like they could have made other scenes longer like it's weird that they did that one that long because it is it feels extremely long 
I don't know why. Uh, you know, if I was gonna if I was gonna make a Hail Mary association, I'd say that you have uh, you have this imagery that's comparable to you know Christ entering the city of Jerusalem on an ass. You kind of have this guy who is an ass leaving the city in in kind of shining garments and you know um, a gold cloak that could that could have been intentionally invoked. I I kind of doubt it, but at least it, 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 there's I think there's a resonance there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's what I love about this story too. I don't know why it just feels relatable to me. Like I feel like you could look at something like that and like it could you could take that out of it for yourself even. Even if it's not in, intentional, I guess. So, can we jumping back before that a little bit though? What did you guys think about, um, like the because after he cuts out the knight's head, then there's the scene of, um, I think it's kind of all mixed together, but there's a scene of him and Essel, and she's asking him what it's like, and she's, she's like says it's like cutting off a melon or something like that, and she does this like what was it like? And then, then he goes to the he's in the bar. And they're kind of mockingly celebrating with him. I can't really tell. And then one of them, one of the guys in the bar calls his mom a witch. And then he gets in a bar fight. And then he goes to his house and the king's there. And then uh, there's the whole scene with the king. And he's like, and it ends with uh, the king gets down and like, wipe, he says, you have mud on your face. Yeah. And he wipes mud off his face. And there's some that I really like the dialogue between him and King Arthur in the house. But did you guys have any thoughts on that whole that whole span before he leaves, like after the Green Knight scene, where he duels the Green Knight to that. Or, did anything stand out to you? Or? So I could be super off, but Jason, you said that the entire vibe, I think that's the word you used, of the movie feels like a journey into knighthood or like maybe in more modern terms initiation into manhood or into purpose or something like that um and so she asked essel asked him what did it feel like to cut off his head and he said like slicing through a melon and then she says what is that like and he says like nothing feels like nothing yeah um and i remember at that point i thought uh it feels like nothing because there's no meaning behind it for him. Um, if that was, if slicing off the head was something that, I mean, all he was doing there was in yeah. an attempt to make himself look good or to try to step into the role that he wished he was, but he didn't really believe that he was. And so I would imagine that slaying the rot or chopping off the head of the Green Knight when um, when you know that's what you're supposed to do actually feels like something and it doesn't feel like nothing. That's really good. Yeah. I like that you brought that up too because I was really curious about that too because he says like nothing and I was like, that's such a strange response. But I think, I think you're, I mean, I think you're spot on in that because even when he cuts off the Green Knight's head, there's this weird sigh from Guinevere where she's just kind of, and they yeah. almost look disappointed. Like, like you should have, you shouldn't have done that. Like you had your chance to give him a blow. Uh, 
And I think there is this theme in a lot of the Arthurian myths, like when a knight is able to give mercy, he should give mercy before doing things mm -hmm. like that. And so I think it was kind of this weird, uh, that's not what makes you a knight. And like you said, that that's what leaves you, it, it left him feeling like it was nothing, like there wasn't a meaning or purpose behind it. Um, yeah, that's really good. I mean, to like really boil it down to terms that are way too simple for both of you if i think about this in terms of like knighthood or um like initiation in, into manhood and thinking about purpose so i've been applying i have to make a decision tomorrow on the job that i'm going to do you know the, my next step in my career and i think about um if i work a job and i go to work for a day and my purpose is to be provision for my family suddenly working that job feels like a whole lot of something but if i'm working that job because i know that's what a guy my age is supposed to be doing it would probably feel like a lot of nothing if that makes sense yeah that makes sense so that does and then he goes over to king arthur and there's all that dialogue which i really love all that dialogue too yeah it feels a lot like talking to god right that's kind of how that felt yeah you're talking to the king the, king, to the king. king of kings sort of the king of kings in a way. yeah um, and i think that's where he said he wanted nothing but greatness mm -hmm. why is it yeah and then and then gawain says is goodness not enough or something like that no that's what essel asked him because she doesn't want oh, him to go on the journey yes. like later that's what she that was a good one yeah too. she's like but I love, I don't know, we, it's weird to me because, like, there's a weird way where, like, I think both are right. Because it's like, you don't want greatness to make yourself great. Like, you know, it's weird. Like, like if you just, then he just wants the crown for himself at that point, And he wants to, like, it kind of, then it would almost jump to the, the end scene. And he gets the crown and he's, he's King Arthur now or something. Like, now he's great. But it's like. Like King Arthur wants greatness for him, but it's but it's weird because it's like I don't know. I love her question like just as much as I love what King Arthur says to him. Like, why is goodness yeah. not enough? Like, why? Well, what's what's the difference? Yeah, that's kind of how it seems to be. Like, like I don't know. Like, just do good deeds. Like, like I don't know. Do do your do what little you can. Um, like don't despise don't despise small things type thing. I think is kind of. But, but she I says it when she says it to him, it's more to kind of get him to not go on the quest to try to get him to mm -hmm. stay. But right. So it might I'm probably taking it out of context there, but I still like the, the question. But I think the like, rest of the movie answers the question that goodness is not good enough. Right. Goodness is not good mm -hmm. enough. What do you I mean? Maybe, go ahead, John. Oh, I was just, I was done. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say, I'll say something then. I, I, I was, I'm tempted to disagree with you because I actually felt like you both changed my mind about something. I had initially thought that there's a way in which Darwin is the greatest of the knights because he was the only one who accepted the challenge. And what occurred to me as you were talking about goodness and greatness is that it's possible that he didn't accept the challenge purely because of his bravery, but because he was wanting to prove himself. And the other knights may have not accepted the challenge because 
they were okay with great they were They were content with goodness and they didn't need to make a reputation for themselves. So then I ask you, Craig, what is the difference between goodness and greatness in the context of this story? Or in the context of more, the story? Or even more generally? Well, in the conversation between Gawain and Essel, it seemed like what he wanted was a reputation. He wanted to be renowned. Yeah, it's this weird way where I think, like, if you're just pursuing goodness it will establish your greatness but if you're trying to establish your own greatness you're just gonna so forgive lose, me lose your head. but was that was that really his motivation when talking to her at that point i didn't get that i i, I understood it as like his desire to fulfill what he knew was correct to do not so much the the fame that he would get when he came back that could well be I think that's a good point too, because he didn't really want to. It was kind of King Arthur that he didn't, he didn't it, so want the, to go. So to go back to the dialogue, King Arthur shows up in the in the house. He he comes home from the bar fight and he kind of stumbles in. He drinks some water. And he looks up and King Arthur's there, so he kneels. And then uh, he says, "I've been waiting for you." Wants to talk to him. Um, and then he says, "He says, what are you going to do? It's almost Christmas. Like, don't you have somewhere to be?" And then yeah. he's like, "Wasn't was it not just a game?" And then King Arthur's like, well, you tell me when you go, yeah. you must go and find out. And so he basically sends him out. And so you get yeah. the sense that he wasn't even going to go. And it's kind of King Arthur that's, but then he asked that question, like, is it so wrong to want greatness for you? Um, yeah. And then. And it's because of that dialogue that I think the difference between goodness and greatness is uh, greatness was his adherence to doing what he knew to be correct and right regardless of goodness would have been going back home and seeing the puppet shows about him over and over for the rest of eternity but greatness <laughs> is stepping into the unknown and so, potentially losing it all i have a question for you and my mind keeps going to this over and over with the masculine feminine dual aspect of it is one is that kind of how it is like the one calls you to greatness and the other one uh, I don't know how to say like causes you to settle or something or is content, but because uh, there's this weird thing in the in a film's like I like guess starts with him and this girl and then she says, "Are you a knight yet?" and he says, "No, not yet." So it's immediately like that's why I was thinking of Bambi because when he meets when Bambi meets Pauline, every time he meets her, it's like he's looking into a mirror, he's looking into the meadow, the still waters, and then he looks up and her face is there. So the feminine is that way; she like reflects back to you what you are, and you have to look at the mirror. So she's kind of asking him the question, are you a knight yet? But then I feel like King Arthur is kind of doing the same thing in a way. He's like, like, this is greatness here. Like, you're looking at it. Like, this is, he's like calling him to greatness, calling him up and calling him higher. And the feminine is almost like, I don't want to say, it's like they're both mirroring him in a way. I, I can't really, is there some of that going on or am I just kind of projecting that onto him? Are you, I think I, I. Oh, Craig, please. Well, if I maybe I'll repeat back to you what I what I think you're saying. If there's there are these dueling values where on one hand you have the impression that enlightenment, or let's say fulfillment of yourself, is about fulfilling your potential and about being what you kind of harnessing your your focus, 
you know, subordinating yourself to one high purpose and achieving it. And then there's a, uh, let's say, another tradition that's at, at odds with that, which is that enlightenment is about melting your own self and blending into your kind of being at one with the world around you as if you're, you know, a plant or an animal. And that's that's more of an in line with the Eastern traditions. Is that what you're talking about when you talk? So what's the second? Can you say the second part again? The other part. So one is fulfilling your potential, and the other part is it's it's a let's say a dissolving of your own ego and accepting not mediocrity, but accepting yeah. your accepting your impermanence and accepting your yeah, I think I think it's kind of like that because the weird the thing that's kind of going through my mind, I could be wrong in this. It's like gosh, it it feels wrong to say it. As I was gonna say the feminine is just a mirror. It just shows you who you are. Like it's just like like that's what the the water is like, the still water in Bambi. Like it but then there's this weird I, that feels wrong because it feels like it still calls you out into a quest, like it calls you out. But there's I think there, so there is the one side where like, you know, he holds that sword and then the sun's shining through and it's like, you get this encounter with like, man, I, you know, it's like, you're for the moment, you're the king. And it's like, this is the fulfillment of your potential. You could be this, you could be this greatness. And it's good to like strive for that. But then there is this other aspect where it's just like, uh, like Essel's kind of like, you don't need to go on this quest. Like, I love you right now. Like, this is who you are right now. And you're, you're good here like why do you have to go do this you're just gonna die like you don't have to it reaching for that high of a or going out on this quest is just foolish like it's just like i don't know it's just weird but it's that yeah it's weird because it's not yeah it's not like mediocrity like you're saying i don't know it feels to me like something like that's going on but it also feels to me like the the feminine is almost what what calls him out though because it reflects back to him something he's not satisfied with she's like are you a knight yet like why but at the same time she loves him even though he's not a knight it's like i don't know but then it he realizes his potential in that because he's like well no i am not a knight i don't know i don't know i don't know what i'm saying i feel like i'm talking in circles at this point <laughs> and you gotta, gotta stop with these long pauses after i'm sorry I man i'm goodness. just thinking i'm just thinking. no that's fine i just get every time i stop i'm like man i just killed this I'm, I'm processing through this at like from a bottom up so i'm working my way up to understanding it in the sense of the divine feminine and kind I, of being a mirror i don't but, know if that's what's going on there i guess the reason i bring it up is just because of the whole green knight nature thing going on as well it just it feels like in it in watching Bambi, it feels like this encounter with the feminine too, or something like yeah. a, a king of the forest type thing. And I think if I remember right, I could be wrong, but I think Sir Gawain is is the, the knight of the maidens. I think that's what he's known for. But I could be wrong on that. Um, so I don't know if there's if that's something going on in the film. And if it is, I don't know if it's like strict really intentional. I'm not really sure. But gotcha. But I don't see that's what I mean. It's still a mystery to me because I'm like, if that's the case, I don't I don't know who the Green Knight is. Like, who is the Green Knight? And then we'll probably get to that scene. But there's the meadow scene where 
she says the green knight is someone you know and i'm like oh i i you guys can maybe help me with that one but i think you're right jason i think there's an element of reflection going on um i don't really have anything else to say on that topic other than i was thinking of what would that look like and it's like if my wife the feminine in our relationship came up to me and was like john i think you're so attractive even though you're a little chubby or you know you do a great job for this family even though we go hungry sometimes uh that's kind of what that feels like right um but everything's fine and and so i think the feminine does have an element of reflectiveness in it like the still waters um and sometimes you don't see what you like. You don't like what you see. Yeah. There's this, I mean, there's a weird thing too, or like, I, I'm not sure quite to make what make of it, but I think the feminine is what crowns you as well too, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, if yeah. I, I know it says that in song of Solomon, it says yes. uh, King Solomon was crowned with the crown, his mother placed on him basically. Um, so I don't know what's going on with that either. I mean, Yeah. <sighs> If if you can see glaring issues in the divine feminine, can't you also see the lack thereof? Can't you be crowned in the same way? If he had come back to her and mm-hmm. said, I finished the game, I have come back with honor and dignity. It's no longer goodness, but it's greatness. That's and and there's nothing reflecting back that he doesn't like i don't know that's kind of crowning in a way because i think i think even more than if he had come back and and not said anything to anybody and he just came back he would have that internal sense of honor but yeah because she the feminine is the crown of the husband right like she herself is in a way yeah but like a city like a city on a hill like a city on the hill yes (laughs) and so like he could come back and and not say anything and or just go off by himself for the rest of his life and he mm-hmm. would have that internal sense of honor but if he were to come back the like the complete reconciliation doesn't happen until he's crowned by her mm-hmm. until he's recognized or like is reflected yeah that's interesting super interesting it's one of those moments where i feel like like mitch mentioned like a moth thing in a light bulb and just like yeah. try trying to bounce around these they did <laughs> I'm like, I feel like sometimes these things are very clear for other people to think about. And I'm just like, I'm trying to piece it all together. I mean, I could be super, super interesting. No, it's it's kind of right. like that idea that happiness isn't real unless it's shared. It's like, have you really ever won until you can see it reflected by something? Are you ever really crowned until yeah, you can see the crown in the reflection? I don't know. I have to be honest with you, the feminine, the symbolic feminine wasn't catching my attention while I was watching. And I did actually have a response to the movie that was really emotional at the end. I It, it affected me. It, it made me examine my life in a serious way, which surprised me. But what was conspicuous to me about the movie, I bring this up because 
let's get back to it. It seems like the encounter with Arthur in his house was the one that motivated him. And in some way, what caught my attention about that is that Arthur is, he's the living symbol of the head. He's the head of the kingdom. He's the head of the knights. He's the governing principle that they all subordinate to. And my my personal sense was I, I was feeling a, uh, how do I say this? Like a, a longing to have my own self, which feels multiplicitous to be focused under a single purpose. And that the, the headlessness motif, uh, it resonated with me in that way. And I wonder if I overemphasize that aspect of the story. What do you what do you guys do with the headlessness? I don't think you over overemphasize it at all. I think you're, I think you're spot on. Is that kind of was that a lot of your main takeaway? Like the you, when you said the feminine aspect was kind of to the side, and it was, it was mostly the headlessness thing, sort of that really stood out the most. Well, yeah, that, that it stood out to me that he was especially with this flash forward scene where he's you see him mistreating the person that he actually loves yeah. in in pursuit of something that he doesn't actually care about ultimately and you yeah. see him kind of waste his life and become hated you know I, yeah you know that that it's it's kind of a for me personally there's a longing to be brought into harmony to kind of have alignment in my being all the way up and have a kind of clarity of purpose where the things that are the most important to me truly are the things that seem most important to me all the time. And I, you know, I think anybody feels that who finds themselves, you know, if they waste time or they feel like they, they are less than what they could be. Do you guys, do you find yourself motivated by that kind of impulse? I know not everybody does. No, personally, I do very much. Motivated by what you could be, specifically, yeah. or just yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think that's what resonated with me uh, the most out of the film, more than the feminine thing, is the headlessness. That's why I was kind of curious to wonder if this uh, would have the same, because it feels like there's, a, like I said, it's kind of this weird kind of call into manhood or knighthood. So I didn't know if it resonate with if this film would resonate with women as much, but I think it would in just the fact that like it's a, it's a the weird headlessness is like you don't know your own name. It's a loss of identity. You don't you're kind of, uh, you don't you don't have that aim like you're talking about. There's no you're not united under one purpose. So I feel like everybody can probably identify with that with with that, and everybody's kind of longing. I mean, you wanna you wanna find your head. You don't wanna. I don't know. That's why I was mention like i think it i think that's what struck me internally more than i realized even consciously the first time i watched it because yeah. even after my eyes i like i said i was trying to write the story of mine and i had this character in it who was more of a uh what sir galahad i guess you could say character where he's just kind of this this knight he's already a knight and he is a knight and he's good and he's shining in armor and all this stuff and then i had him encounter lady wisdom and she cuts off his head and i think it was just me after i watched this film i like 
kind of took it internally. But then as soon as I did that, I was like, because I hated the character. Like I was trying to write this character and I was like, I hate this character. This is my least favorite character. And that I'm try trying to incorporate in this whatever pieces of writings I'm trying to do. And I hate it. And then as soon as I cut his head off, I was like, oh, now he's my favorite character. Like now I can identify right. with this guy because I feel like that most of the time. I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know where my head is. And I don't, uh, and it's like, you don't, um, gosh, there's this one. Let me see if I can find it. it it's really personal. I don't know. Should I share something that's personal? Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me see. So, well, what, cause like, even after watching this, um, so when I was in India, I remember like, especially there was one day where I just, I felt like totally lost too. But then I was, I wrote this and I was kind of writing it off, um, fictionalizing or making this personal thing that has to me a little bit like a fantasy thing. But there's one girl there that like, she's just kind of standoffish. She's really quiet, super nice girl. But, um, and so we were walking back from the day we went swimming and we we're just walking, coming up to more of the city part. And there's this hut to the side. And as we're passing the hut, these dogs run out and these just dogs are like barking, like, like they're going to attack or something. And this girl that like, didn't even hardly ever talk, like didn't really talk to me as much or anything, all of a sudden just leaps behind me. And it was just kind of like, I had a head for like a split second. I had a head and yep. it was just like, and then as soon as the dogs were gone, she like ran away from me as fast as she did the dogs. And then it's like, there went my head, you know? And so I just kind of wrote this thing and that's, I mean, that's basically the story, but basically it was kind of like, uh, let's see. Um, where's the part? Uh, for a brief moment. Um, I wrote it in third person too, because I write it in first person and I, transpose it to like third person because i'm trying to write about i don't know which way to do it better it's easier for me to write first person though than do it um uh so let's see i can just do you guys want me to read it all it's kind of long i don't know i can read it fast no. whatever you all want right, all right whatever speed you like yeah all right he walked along down some gravel path making his way towards the outskirts of a poor city a little girl came walking up beside him she uh and it says, I wrote, she looked Italian because I was trying to draw on this other character, whatever. That's neither here nor there. With long, curly, dark hair and a scrape on her knee. I don't know if I'll take that out, uh, but that's in there. Anyway, she handed him a cracker and he did not seem to notice that he did not have a head. For the first time, oh, and she did not seem to notice that he did not have a head. For the first time in a long time, he thought the day was perfectly lovely. As the two of them walked by a small hut, a group of jackals ran out, barking ferociously as they came. They thought that they were guard dogs, but they were only jackals. The little girl got scared and ran behind him that she might that that he might stand in the way as a wall or a shield between her and the beast. Then the character's name is Cleopas, uh, kind of from one of the Gospels. Um, Cleopas became an oak, sturdy, strong, sturdy, immovable. For a brief moment, he thought he had found his head again, or at least a head. For whether it was his head or not, he could not say. For truly, the head that he found in that moment was much more nobler head than he could ever truly hope to attain. It is a head that holds at bay the fangs of wild beasts from the flesh of children. And what a high calling is that such a magnificent office, a wonderful, awesome name. Perhaps that is such a head given to a father when he holds his daughter for the first time. And he should never lose, lose such a feeling, such a charge to his heart until alas, he loses his daughter. The dogs ran back into the hut and the little girl went on running away from Cleopas almost as fast as she had run from the dogs. For without threat of harm, he was but a stranger again. And now having fear strike out at her, 
she did not see the stranger as so friendly as before. Then Cleopas watched, and he beheld a helmet shining of such a magnificent glory fall from his shoulders, empty, as if it had only been floating by some brief cloud of fancy that had now been blown away by the slightest wind. It tumbled to the ground in front of him, yet beyond his reach. As he stepped towards it, it vanished from his sight. And although his heart still yearned for it, he could not find it again, and was left with a haunting feeling that he that he might never will. So that's it. That's good. It kind of ends sort of sad, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. But that's, I don't know, that's kind of headlessness, I think. I don't know. Mm. Maybe we all You undersold it. it. I, did I? Yeah, that was really good. Thanks, man. Yeah, I think you could look at it in a, in a couple of ways. So, like, Jason, you're talking about in that story, the head in terms of like identity and purpose. But Craig earlier mentioned uh, headlessness in reference to not all of the members being unified under one thing, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Two different things there. Um, I mean, it reminds me of in scripture where it's like if your left arm or left hand causes you to sin, cut it off because uh, it's yeah. better for you to to not have that or pluck out your own eyes because it's better for what is remaining to be unified under one thing. And so. So what causes that the unification? Is it something like death? Impending death? Like, does that cause them to unify or to the, all the members to easily find the purpose better can i specify your question jason bring it into yeah, like a little finer level do. of resolution <laughs> craig do. you had said that it moved you specifically personally by thinking about unification of all of the members what does that mean for you and then maybe we can work upwards from there unification yeah well you said uh, you said the entire ending, the headlessness really stuck out to you because there's a deep well, it was, desire for it was all a, of it the was parts. A clarifying, it was a clarifying experience because how do I put it? It's as if the the dissociated parts understood their relationship to each other. They were kind of properly aligned for a moment. Okay. And typically, I, I, I don't know about you guys. My, my feeling is that my personality is a lot more dissociative than most people. So I, that, I, I think to every, to, for everybody, there's some degree of feeling like there's multiple aspects of your personality there that are in competition. I think that's totally normal. Uh, my, my sense is I experience that in a more vivid way than a lot of people. And maybe that's not true, but sometimes I talk to people about it and they're like, yeah, that's not what it's like for me. <laughs> so the, J Jason, your question about what it is that unifies them is, you know, I, you asked if it was death or dismemberment and, or I don't know if you said dismemberment, but you said death. And in my case, it was that flash forward ex experience, flash forward scene where he, he imagines you know, the, uh -huh. the tragic consequences of uh, of his failure. Hmm. You know, and the, is that? I guess that's why I was wondering, though, because that seems to me like his life is flashing before his eyes. So it's kind of um, he's faced with death 
at his door at that moment. And it's like, uh, like he, he thinks he's going to die in that moment. And it's like, what's, what's truly important here? Like what is important? Mm -hmm. Like what's, what's of ultimate yeah. importance in this moment. And he has his life flash before his eyes and he realizes my life is not a, of ultimate importance because he sees it and he's like, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Like, and so he, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what to do with it. Cause it's like, uh, he finds his head by giving up his head. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like at the end he's, he says, you know, cause it starts since we're jumping to the end, like it starts and she says, he falls down and she says, he says, I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet. And then at the end, he takes off the sash and then he says, I'm ready. I'm ready now. And like, that's how it ends. And then he says, off with your head. And it's yeah. like, that's the, I don't, I guess you get the sense that he finds his head or at least uh, like you're talking about when I watched that scene, it seems to at least just kind of strike your heart that way or something like it feels like you get this moment of, of like unification where the members come together. And I don't know. I don't know if it's death. I, I sometimes I think it's death because um, I think when you're faced, I guess I just say that because I think when you're faced with those moments, it really it really makes you weigh out what's what's most important when you think you're going to die the next day. You know, it's a, which is a bad, terrible way to live. You know, it's hard to enjoy life if you're living under that. So it's like, I don't, I don't really um, want people to experience that. But um, I feel like when you're living with that, um, it, you know, I think, I think it can align, align your goals and your values probably proper more more rightly i guess and then your other members might come into into focus or the ones that don't get in line you would say get out of here this needs to be done now and you can go uh because we don't have time to you know to, i don't know don't have time for silliness at this moment <laughs> i don't know but that's what i mean there is a time for for just having pleasure and enjoying life and it's like if you live every day thinking you're gonna die with some existential threat then you're never gonna almost enjoy communion and laugh with your friends like you're just gonna be a, probably too serious but then at the same time it's like i don't i don't you're sounding very ecclesiastical yeah time for time for, yeah just i'll just go back and forth i had a discussion last night about uh, me and this other girl we were talking about how we're gemini's and it's like you know, like, oh, I can't be two things at once. Now I'm just two faced. Like I guess that's kind of the impression. That's <laughs> just like always, always going back and forth. I didn't even know that was a thing. But so, do you think it's death is the unifying factor, Jason, or is it the like the the sober attitude that you can have? I don't know. The recognition I, of death. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you guys say because my. You know, my my thought is death. I would say yes, but I just love death because I'm like, you know, she's she's my white lady probably because it's just because yeah. like, to me, I, I don't know. I just like it that to me, I would say yes, but I'd be interested to hear what you say. What do you think? If there's... Do you want to go first, Craig? 
I have a few thoughts. I'm still trying to find out, so you should go first. All right. I don't I don't really know what I'm saying, but so there's the scene before that when he's captured and tied up. When it does that full 360 and he's bones and he's been dead for a hundred years. And then it I think it reverses direction mm-hmm. or it goes around a second time, whatever. And he's alive. And that and that end scene combined were incredibly interesting to me because I don't think I've ever seen the concept of of everything is happening everywhere all the time so well. So I'll see more. He like he didn't he so he didn't so die. He didn't die, right? He didn't die there in age. But he could have. Um, he didn't go back home and run from the Green Knight and have this long thing, but he could have. And in a way, those realities are just as real as the one that he was experiencing because it was by some infinitesimal bit that you know that reality was avoided. And so at every millisecond through through space and time, there are an infinite number of ways that things could play out. And like in a way, they're all happening at the same time. Just we're we're observing one. And so oh gosh, what we were talking about, we were talking about death is death. Yes. And so being a Christian, um I think that death look and I'm I'm at a loss for words here, but I think death you were saying like living like you could die at any moment sort of a thing. That seems more like a recognition of death, which in the context of the movie is like a recognition that he could have died or a recognition that he did run back and lived his life without his head or the recognition that a number of things could have happened. And so for a Christian, I it kind of struck me as the recognition that um, uh, every avenue that my life could possibly take ends in rot except for in Christ. And, and that is a, that is death knocking at the door. And that is very sobering, right? Um, Sin, basically. Are you kind of seeing what I'm getting at? Yeah, that was really like, like it's always, it's always there. Yeah. 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 And And that's that's sobering. That's And it's death. That's her speech, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they, uh, I just loved that when they put both of those in the movie. It's like those terrible realities where he gets overcome by rot are happening at the same time. In the movie, I mean, they obviously didn't happen, but but they might as well have happened. Except he was fortunate enough to to have a goal and to be unified under something that prevented it and there's more there and i'm i'm doing a bad job with with words but i hope you can understand no i think you're right there is this way where like you know that verse in the bible that says let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die yes and there's this gosh one of his craziest verses in the bible after it is like right after he says for this there will be no atonement for you and you're just god so it's like 
there is this way where death is at your door. You're living this way where you could die all the time and you could just be like, well, I'm let me eat and drink for tomorrow. I die. I'm just going to live it up. But the proper way you're talking about that just ends in rot because the proper response is to be to live through Christ, which is kind of almost a death to yourself. And then, and then the green isn't it's life and it's not yes. a rot. It's not a, yes. a mold or a corpse. Mm -hmm really good john nice you got a whole sermon there <laughs> i loved those two scenes i loved that scene where he was the bones and it turned around so this is i like what you're bringing up john something was occurring to me today and i'll share it because it's relevant this christ person this character this is a person I'm approaching this in naturalistic type of terms because I don't know how to speak about it spiritually. Something about this, it, it, it seems like when you focus on this person, when you make this person the object of your attention, that it has a clarifying effect, an aligning effect on the aspects of your, the other aspects of your personality, and you kind of subordinate to him in some way. But not everybody has this reaction. So, for instance, what what occurred to me today is I was thinking about the person, the historical person. You know, like it could have been the case that he came, he he lived his life, and people saw who he was, and they reacted to him. What if what if instead of crucifying him? We worshipped him. You know, what if we made him king? You know, he obviously didn't have that effect on people, on some people. But maybe you see what I'm getting at. Um, what is it? What is it that makes sometimes that that person they have an encounter with? How do you have an encounter? I suppose I maybe I'm asking a cheesy question, but. Apparently, he doesn't grip everybody. Yeah. Sorry for my pause. That's a mm -hmm. serious That's question. question. Yeah. I'm going to text my wife, and I'm listening to you. So is it a question? Oh, I was so, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I, I, I don't know if this really answers your question. This might be anecdotal. But even in context of the movie, um, I think the people that have that unification process that we've been talking about are the ones that have seen the end results of the other branches. Um, so in the movie, he gets to watch to the end where he finally loses his head and realizes that it ends in death. And so in a way, he had no other option. That's interesting. Recognition of human depravity, sort of a thing. Um, yeah, I think that's he, one aspect to it. I don't think that's all of it. And he spent his whole life living a lie and his the outcome is the same. Like Ecclesiastes, death comes to all kind of thing. Yeah. Like 
yeah, one event to the righteous and the wicked. Uh, and so he sees his whole, because yeah. the, the whole scene, I guess, just to clarify if people that haven't seen it, right before he meets the Green Knight and then he, his life kind of flashes before his eyes and he sees himself. Well, well, you don't know he's seeing himself. He basically flees away from the Green Knight. You don't know it's a vision yeah. at first. And he runs back home. He marries his beautiful, like he goes to the prostitute, Essel. He ends up having a kid with her. He basically deserts her, throws some coins at her, takes a child, marries a more beautiful girl, becomes a king, like all this stuff. I guess that's subjective if you want to say she's more beautiful. But but anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but uh, sorry. Um, but then so uh, you said his you said his noble wife is more beautiful or Essel? I, I I liked Essel better, but I said I said the more beautiful wife because the girl's all dolled up, you know. She looks really yeah, yeah. She's yeah. supposed to be presented, I think, as more beautiful. But I, I actually liked Essel better. But anyway, so they of course you. But did. Anyway, yeah, I like the horse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go to the front. Anyway, no, <laughs> so the scene, and then he lives his life. He ends up like uh, I think it shows him like he becomes king. Somehow he becomes king. I don't even know how he gets the crown from. He gets crowned king. Like, I don't think he was next to the lion or how it happens. But then uh, he's fighting in some war. I think he loses his son at one point in the war. It looks like his son dies. But he lives his whole life on a lie, basically, because he never, uh, he flees from the Green Knight. And he sees, he lives his whole life. And then at the end, there's this war. And I guess war is knocking at his door. It seems like he's in a war. If I'm, yeah. you can correct me if I'm remembering this wrong. And then, yeah. uh, and then I think, like they're beating at the door and it's him and his wife and his child sitting on the thrones. And I think his wife and his child get up and leave. And it's just him sitting there like alone with them beating on the door. And then all of a sudden his head just falls off. Like he just, no, he takes the crown off. I think. Right. Is that what it, Oh no. The sad. Yeah, that's right. Did you, Sash. did you notice how it looked intestinal? Sash. No, say more. What? It looked intestinal. Well, Craig noticed. Yeah, he pulled it out of a, like a little hole in his, uh, um, in his coat or whatever, and kind of um, like yanked it out with two hands and hmm. almost that. Well, it had it had this kind of slurpy sound effect with it as well. Yeah, like it was oh. his guts. Like it was such right. a part of him. It was like nasty little deep sash. inside. <laughs> like he he knew he couldn't live without it. Oh, um, that's really good. Yeah. It was really good fun. Yeah. So should we explain that too? So, you know, I, uh, I don't, don't want to bre- breeze over Craig's question. And we could also yeah, do this that's... like for another night too. Yeah, that's I'm going to have to go to bed pretty soon. Yeah. Um, and we got to try to get Luke. Craig, what do you, what do you think? Well, I like what you said. It sounds like what you're saying is that experience that Garwin had is akin to, you know, you, you look at your life and you see yourself, imagine yourself dying honorably as a fool and you prefer that to dying as a king who's depraved and uh, i suppose it, it sounds like what you're saying is yeah, i really like all, what you all, said. All, all, all paths are depraved unless you are subordinate to this you know the way of were you were you talking about that in context of the movie or that because you brought up jesus christ the historical figure right yeah i was talking about it with reference to jesus yeah wow that's really interesting. I like that you said well, the fool it's, it's too. Not... Sorry, go ahead. Well, John, I, what I just said, I was restating what I thought you said. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's like I said, that's probably anecdotal, but um, I think the only reason I believe what I believe is because I have to believe it. 
because there's no other option. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, I like that you're bringing this in here, Greg, because it, you know, it, uh, is when he's in the, the Green Chapel, it's like, I mean, to make that decision, he's really, really making the decision at that point, like, all right, I'm just going to die here. Like, this is a better option. It's a fool's errand I went on, but this is a better option than, than living a lie, living, becoming this depraved king, uh, living this out. But it reminds me of, so like, you know, in, uh, the Marvel movies when uh, I gotta bring in Marvel movies when um you have <laughs> Iron Man at the the end game and he gives his life for the worlds sort of so you think like okay this is some Christ like whatever like he lays down his life for the salvation sure. of the world at the end of that um but then the next movie they come out with is Spider Man and I thought this was more it was harder for me to wrestle with because Spider Man becomes the scapegoat like he not only gives his life but they, they take it a level up and he gives his story. He gives his, his remembrance. Like, because Iron Man, they remember him as the great guy, you know, but Spider-Man's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be remembered as the fool, as the villain, as this thing. And it seems like Christ is even willing to do that in that way. When he goes to the mm. cross, he's, he's really offering it all up. He's like, like even his disciples desert him. He's giving up his whole story, his whole remembrance at that point. He offers up literally everything. And it's kind of like Gawain, Gawain in that moment too is just kind of like no one's gonna know what happened. Like I'm literally gonna die in this chapel. Like everybody's just gonna think I'm a fool. I walked out. I never came home. They could think I just ran away. Never came back. Like he's giving up his remembrance in a way too. Like his entire story is just. It's really good, Jason. That's really good. It's, it's just Marvel movies, man. They know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's not a podcast with you if you don't bring up <laughs> Spider-Man at least 30 times. <laughs> yeah, it's related to the, the the issue you brought up earlier, Jason, about well, there's there's a there's a force that's kind of calling you to accept your own obscurity. But there's another force that's calling you to uh, reach your potential. And they they both seem like they're calling you higher. I don't yeah. know how we yeah. reconcile those. Are they really that different? Is the Venn diagram of those really completely separate? Well, I suspect it's a rhetorical question. But... Yeah. Hmm. Well, guys, we could keep going or we could stop here or we can I should, pick I this should up tomorrow probably night. tap out. All right. Did All right. We can pick it up. So we're, I'd like to get back more. Maybe where we left off to, unless Luke is here, we can get his thoughts too. But I'd like to maybe kind of, because I feel like every scene in this movie, you could break down. Then yeah. you'd help breaking it down too. So, but I'd really like to get your guys' thoughts on some of the other scenes that, because we kind of went skipped over. Well, we went to the end of the movie, but kind of. Mitch have also, to. Mitch also sent oh. a, like a very long text for us to look at. Oh, so no. we can dig into that next time. All right, so I created it. Um, so I don't know if this will work. Um, I was telling Mitch earlier, I don't know. There's been quite a few movies where I've wanted to do, like, commentaries on. I thought it'd be fun, um, but they just never seem to happen. I don't know why. Um, and I don't really want to force them to happen either, so I'm not really sure. But I'm like, you know, this could be the <laughs> the last uh, option of trying, maybe. And then if this works, I don't know, maybe I could make create new threads and we could uh, 
because there's other movies I'd love to talk about too. Um, but if this is a good way of going about it, maybe this would be the best way to do it. Um, since it's just hard to cause find time um, between schedules. I think some of it's hard too because like the problem, the thing with movies is like it's usually more than just two people. Like usually there's, I want to bring in a lot of people because I, I want to hear what a lot of what uh, all of you guys have to think about a different film or something. So, um, but anyways, if you want um, to um, just I don't know, drop your thoughts about the movie. Any or any questions too? Um, I have questions for you guys, but I'll just see where where you guys take this first, I guess, and then. Um, because I know it's like one day left. It's Christmas Eve, so I don't know how much we'll get in here anyway. So if you just kind of, maybe that would just be the best thing to do, like drop your um, your favorite uh, scenes, the things that stood out to you. Um, and then if there were any specific thoughts or questions, I guess, that you would like to get everyone else's take on um, or something, uh, then just throw that, drop that in here as well, and I'll try to, grab all the audio clips. Hopefully I can do that and then string them all together and just put them on the end of the the, the video or whatever we have so far. Um, but if it doesn't work, no big deal. I know it's Christmas Eve. We're probably all busy. But if you, if you find some free time, um, go for it. Thanks. Hey, Jason. So I don't know how Christological the original tale or tales were. Um... I get the impression that um, Arthur and his knights were God-fearing people, um, but I don't, I don't know how Christological those original stories were. But I do know that any movie that starts with someone being doused with water in baptism, uh, with the words "Christ is born" being said, is begging to be read as a as a Christ narrative, a Christ tale. Um, and then I just, I, I don't know about, I'm not as confident about the ending, but I, it's really hard for me to understand a world where they weren't trying to reference, uh, Matthew 25, was it 25? Uh, what well am my good and faithful servant, uh, enter into my rest? Um, when the knight says, well done, uh, my good night now off with your head uh so with those bookends in mind uh i basically am left to to read the whole thing as a as a christ narrative and in this case uh, obviously very flawed character um uh, it's a little christ it's a christian uh so it's like a pilgrim's progress uh, of sorts and so that's all swimming around in my head as as i think about this movie which is definitely one of the best of last year uh was in my top 10 for sure and uh it's a very competent filmmaker like i said everyone should check out ghost story too but that's neither here nor there um looking forward to what everybody's been thinking about regarding this movie the veiled threat the people we might become tomorrow seem to pose the people we are today i think was a quote and that's david ehrlich he's a pretty good uh film critic for indiewire what I want to hear from you, Jason, and, and others, is uh, your take on the the woman that he meets who asks for help in, in retrieving her head. Uh, I'm sort of at a loss on that. And I think another thing I want to hear 
about is whether or not Craig get any more insight on the the woman who's blindfolded. I know he said that in the story, the original story, that's supposed to be Morgan Le Fay, but uh, I don't know a lot about why she's there, who she is in the story. Also don't know a lot about who the fox is in the story or why he's there. Of course, there's just a ton I don't know, but one last thing, and I'll shut up for a while. I don't know how difficult it'll be for you to string all this together, but I don't know if anyone's seen The Last Temptation of Christ. I haven't, but I, I do know this story, and uh, I shouldn't probably speak about it since I haven't seen it, but apparently uh, Christ is on the cross and uh, Satan tempts him uh, with a normal human life, and that's what the the vision of the entire movie is. And uh, the final moments of The Green Knight are basically like a microcosm of that movie. He gets a vision of all that his life could be, and he decides to, you know, hop up on the cross and, or stay on the cross or uh, uh, surrender himself to decapitation in this case. Yeah, man, I really love I love all those thoughts you brought in. Um, I didn't even, yeah, see, that's why I want to get your guys' take on it because the way you brought in the baptism uh, at the beginning when Christ is born, like, I I didn't even pick up on that. I, I don't know why. And then the end, the end scene... Um, yeah, how you tied that back to the beginning and how um, well done, my good and faithful servant. So here's um, uh, something to that. Gosh, here's a question I really, really want to ask you guys. Um, I don't know. I'll ask in a second because I'll try to respond to your stuff as well. But like, yeah, the end scene, it seems to be uh, like the weird, the baptism into death or something. Like he's giving up his life. Like he has the baptism, the splashing of water at first, like almost like a, would you, is it am i tracking right is this kind of a thing um that you're getting at or do you think if you weren't getting at it do you think that's kind of something that might be going on in the film is that the first is kind of the baptism of water and the second is kind of like the baptism into death or something uh and you give up your life so that you uh may keep it sort of thing um yeah you know when me and after you had to hop off me and um john and craig were talking about that how it's um it almost seems just like uh, uh, we're talking about the idea of headlessness and stuff. And when he loses his head at the end is when he finally finds it. Because like you said, he kind of um, has this 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 um, temptation to to have whatever whatever life he kind of wants. But it's like ultimately not the not the true life he wants or something like that. Because the true life he wants is actually in losing it, and that's when he would actually find his uh, proper. Uh, his life properly oriented under like all the all the members Craig was bringing up that all the members come into alignment under the head when he kind of finally gives up his head is kind of the I don't know it's interesting super interesting idea so yeah I really we kind of ended the the last video clip right before we were going to get into that scene I think like we kind of jumped from the beginning of the movie to the end uh, I don't know, because you kind of got to hop all over anyway. But I really wanted to get in that. That's my favorite scene of the whole movie, is the the one with the spring uh, where he goes into the house. It's just so, like, haunting and perfect. And just, like he says, when he, when he, uh, he's standing there, she just, like, floats. Like, did you guys notice that? She floats up to him. Like, she doesn't, she, that's why he reaches out to touch her, because, like, he's like freaked out because he's standing there and she like her feet don't move she just kind of glides towards him and then he reaches out to touch her and she's like don't touch me like 
<laughs> which is kind of it's it reminds me of fantastic it's like when he reaches out to touch touch the lady and it's just like this thing it's a i think a common narrative in like fairy tales like you don't you don't touch i mean but you don't touch what's holy either you know it's just kind of like i don't know it's super fascinating craig pointed out to me though i didn't get this either that i think she is the fox um because he comes up out of the spring and then just the fox is sitting there and i don't know why i didn't catch that either so i think his familiar whatever you know this animal it's not really a spirit animal but you're familiar it's kind of maybe like a spirit guide kind of like a companion um so the fox but i guess it's also whatever spirit this lady is as well um and there seems to be like different uh feminine i don't want to say qualities but spirits that are in in him in his journey and and they're kind of calling him into like knighthood in a way but then i don't know i don't know what's going on because he has like his mom is one um and i don't know if his mom is kind of um yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure what to to make of it and the the blindfolded lady at the end i was gonna ask you guys if you thought that was the lady at the spring um it's really it's really complicated for me like i'm not i'm not quite sure because the the essel in the beginning doesn't seem to me like the the same essel at the end either like they almost seem like different like the essel in the beginning doesn't quite come off as like so much as a temptress as the one at the end um and that's why the it's hard to like hard for me to pick up on like the spirit of the the um of the feminine like the fox almost seems more like the essel in the beginning to me if i'm being honest because she's just kind of with him the time and then right towards the end she kind of like the temptation she kind of gives in the beginning the essel in the beginning is kind of like don't go on this quest um you could just stay here with me like why is goodness not enough and then at the end uh the fox is kind of like you know you could turn back right now and i could keep the secret and you could just go home and it's kind of almost, I don't know if it's the same. Because then the fox, like, points out what's that around your waist. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to you guys about it. Because there's a lot of things that just are remain mysterious to me and incredibly fascinating. But the part with the, the, the spring is just like, gosh, I don't know. It was just, it was perfect. That whole scene was just perfect. Um, and then the... He says to her, are you real or are you a spirit? And she's like, what's the difference? And I was just like, God, that is so spot on. And then uh, what was the other the other part where, uh, oh, yeah, he asked her, if I get your head, what will you give me in return? And the, her response and the look on her face was just like, man, I loved it so much. She was just like, why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? And I was just, yeah, she was just like completely offended that a knight would or or any man would would not just do the good good deed from the goodness of his heart and why he would do it for the sake of a reward or something you know i think kind of gets at what what you mentioned too about like honor like you don't even really do it for honor you just do it for because it needs to be done type thing i don't know but i'd love i want i want to hear your guys take on that whole scene with the the spring the headless lady at the spring and the other question I was going to ask that I really wanted, and it has to do with that that spring scene, is like the end of it. She says, um, now I can see thee, and I shall strike thee down with every care I have for thee. 
the green knight is someone you know. Like, I think he drops her head and she says that, now I see thee and I will strike thee down with every care I have for, have for thee. The green knight is someone you know. So what do you guys think of that? Like, what does she mean by that? And who do you think the green knight actually is? Or do you think it kind of remains mysterious and it's not necessarily something you should be able to put your finger on? Yeah, those are some interesting thoughts. I could see the the the, the baptism by death, like there's there's water, then there's fire, uh, the pain, suffering, um, and then you lose your head to find it. You know, I don't know. You know, now that I'm thinking, I'll just think out loud for a second. The crazy thing is, that this whole thing started by. It, it didn't even have to be a decapitation, right? Because when the the Green Knight comes to the Christmas party, doesn't isn't it true that he says something like, you know, whatever blow is is offered to me, uh, I'm going to return that same blow a year later, and he just went for it. He went for the whole head, uh, so he could have just offered like a little nick, right? Uh, I wonder what that's all about. Wow. Okay, that's great. I did not. I think I did not connect the the lady with the head uh, to the fox. I actually thought of the fox and the mother as being connected, as well as the lady in the manor that looks exactly like Esshole. The reason I connected the mom and the fox is because I, I don't fully remember, except that I know the fox tells him to turn back and the mother gives him this sash that's going to protect him uh, but it's not protection that he needs and this sash is kind of like the symbol of his dishonor it's like giving up um, on his mission because uh, the, the lady at the manor has it when they have sort of their sloppy sexual encounter she has the the, the sash is there um, it's so all of these are, are forces that would that would have him stop uh, his mission, and that's kind of why I can't seem to connect the fox with the woman uh, who who wanted her head back, because um, she seems to be calling him to honor, whereas the fox seems to be uh, inviting him to dishonor, inviting him to survive, to live, uh, but to lose his soul. Yeah, I was, I was kind of confused by that too, because it seemed like the foxes, I had the impression that it was a good thing the entire time until like that last scene where, uh, yeah, the fox kind of says, come back with me, like, don't go any farther. Um, I won't tell anybody what you do. But then, but then because the fox points out the sash, I couldn't tell if that was why uh, if so, if the fox wasn't actually tempting him, if it was just more of a, um, like, you know, cause, uh, cause the way, the way the fox, I think, points out the sash is something like, uh, I, cause I think he said, no, I must go on with my mission. I can't remember what he says. And then the fox says, well, that thing around your waist says otherwise, like almost calling him out, like you need to get rid of that thing or something like that. Um... Like, the thing on your waist is means you're a coward, so you might as well just come back. So that's kind of the impression I got after the fox made that last statement. That's why I wasn't sure if it was Winifred, uh, 
when Craig pointed that out, I was like, oh, you know what? It probably is. That's a really good point. But it's how does he reunite with the fox, right? Because isn't didn't the hunter from the the manor, um, where the esso looking woman is and the the blindfolded lady is the didn't the hunter have the fox captured in his bag, uh, and he released him when the when Gawain was hitting the road. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that hunter thing where he catches the fox. Um, and on, there's like a painting on the wall where it shows the hunter and all the hounds chasing the fox. And then Gawain goes back in and there's a, or Gawain or whatever goes back and it shows another painting chasing him. Uh, so I didn't know what was going on with all that stuff. But dude, watch this scene again. I just sent it. I just rewatched it. And I do think, I, this made me even think it might even be uh, more convinced that it's actually Winifred, the girl at the spring. Um, because um, the fox says, are you this man? Uh, and then she poses that question to him, and, like, she says the same thing to him um, when she said that a knight came into my bed and raped me, basically, and cut off my head. Or I don't know if she says rape me, but she said a knight came into my room and cut off my head. Um, and then she said, are you this man? And Or, no, I think she says perhaps it was you or something like that. And And he's like, it wasn't. And she was like, are you sure? So I don't know. That's why it kind of makes me think it might actually be the fox. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. What do you think, man? Why do you stop me? I cannot tarry. Oh, wait a minute. You will find no mercy. No happy What witchcraft is this? No witchcraft. He you seek is as wild as I, but knows no measure. I know what I face. If any man truly knew, he would bear his shame happily and turn away head held high to end his song as he saw fit. His secret would be safe with me. Are you this man? No. This movie is like a straight up fairy tale, man. Everything's so like mysterious and strange, but like <laughs> perfectly connected. It's just like that that opening uh that opening uh dialogue thing from uh Fantasties. Yeah, I mean I I rewatched this and got even less convinced that this was her. I was like this this is any fairious uh creature, you know, right here. This is but she wants to talk him down. I think it's his mom. I don't. I can't remember why I thought that, but they they felt deeply connected to me. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. Is sheer fairy tale, man. It's like none of it makes sense, and yet in a, in a poetic way, it all totally does. This is the devil, man. He's tempting him. He's saying you can end this song however you want, and I won't tell a soul. Dude, I didn't even watch the end of it. I clicked off of it before. Um, no, they cut off the end, like the most important part of that clip I just sent. Because uh, he said, the fox says, you know, you could go home uh, and hold your head high and end your song as you see fit. Or, uh, your secret would be safe with me. And then he's like, are you, then the fox is like, are you this man? And he says, no. And then that's when the fox says, that thing around your waist says otherwise. That's why I didn't think it was the devil. I thought it was like... Winifred basically calling him out.
being like, that thing around your waist says that you're a coward, so you might as well just go home. But that's just my opinion, man. You know, you asked who the Green Knight is, man. And I know what the Lady of the Manor wants to convince Gawain that the Green Knight is, and it's not good. It's what lust leaves behind. It's what uh, has rotted after the red turns. But, uh, yeah, I think in the story, yeah, it's, uh, it's God the Father, man. And he comes in to this party, and he's asking the question, you know, who's going to be Israel? Who's willing to wrestle with me? And Gawain, the deceptive Jacob character, steps up to the plate, and he bites off more than he can chew. And, uh, you know, eventually he has to come face to face with God, like all mankind. Nature will do her trick. Uh, what does he say? Do her trick and suck them in and tuck them tight. Uh, when he's walking through all those dead bodies. You know, there's that weird scene, too, where he's, like, right before he comes across that battlefield, he finds the dead soldier, like, leaning against a tree before he encounters, like, the little thief guy or whatever, whatever his role is. Um, yeah. Super interesting, man. That whole movie is just phenomenal. And then, um... Yeah, when he, he gives him the directions to the Green Chapel, and then he's he's like, is there really a Green Chapel up ahead? And he says, you're in it. I don't know, man, just that's the whole movie. It's amazing. One can imagine stories without rational cohesion and yet filled with it, associations like dreams and poems that are merely lovely sounding, full of beautiful words, but also without rational sense and connections with, at the most, individual verses which are intelligible, like fragments of the most varied things. This true poesy can, at most, have a general allegorical meaning and an indirect effect, as music does. Thus is nature, so purely poetic, like the room of a magician or a physicist, like a children's nursery or a carpenter's shop. A fairy story is like a vision without rational connections, a harmonious whole of miraculous things and events, as, for example, a musical fantasia, the harmonic sequence of an Elonian harp, indeed nature itself. In a genuine fairy story, everything must be miraculously mysterious and interrelated. Everything must be alive, each in its own way. The whole of nature must be wondrously blended with the whole world of the spirit. In fairy story, the time of anarchy, lawlessness, freedom, the natural state of nature makes itself felt in the world. The world of the fairy story is that world which is opposed throughout to the world of rational truth, and precisely for that reason, it is so thoroughly an analog to it, as chaos is an analog to the finished creation. It reminds me of that quote, uh, that when you quoted the, um, the guy, the guy at the manor that he meets, um, what does he say again? I can't remember. You'll remember because you, you quoted it earlier. Dude, I, I, I just see how ecclesiastical this is again, man. And he says, is this really all there is right before the night, right before he kind of has that vision of, of how he could end his song in his own way. You know, 
it's the whole book of Ecclesiastes in that last scene. He says, is this all there is? Then in that vision, he tested all uh, pleasure, power, wisdom. Uh, he builds a kingdom. He watches it burn. It's all meaningless. And at the end, he says, you know what? No, I know. Uh, I'm going to accept my judgment. And because he accepts his judgment, uh, his judgment is good. Well, the, his fate is good. That doesn't seem that way. He is rendered a brave knight. He is rendered a faithful servant. And uh, then that which seemed to be uh, all there was uh, is, is taken from him with the knowledge that it isn't all there is. And that that's what I read into. But... Um, Gosh. I think your last comment about how it's ecclesiastical, man, that was really good. Um, I wish I could get it. What's better, the the hundred emoji or the fire heart? Um, I don't know which one to give it there. 